Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. After the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on September 18th and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett just a week later, there's been a lot of speculation about the political implications of a Supreme Court fight just days before the election. Democrats have seen a boon in fundraising, with Jamie Harrison, the Democrat running against Republican Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham, pulling in millions in the days after Ginsburg's death. Graham himself, as well as several vulnerable Republican senators, are hoping that the confirmation of a conservative to the court will help boost GOP enthusiasm and turnout in their states. And this week, several of them, including Graham, Tom Tillis, John Cornyn, and Joni Ernst, were in the spotlight during the hearings. There is no way you'll ever convince me that Amy Coney Barrett is not qualified using any reasonable standards of qualification. Thank you, Judge Barrett, and uh, thank you for your family for enduring all the challenges that you have. At the end of the day, that's my test for a Supreme Court justice. Will you defend the Constitution? You stand accused of intending to violate your oath before you even take it. Further, our Democratic colleagues want you to guarantee a result in a case as a quid pro quo for your confirmation. We're going to vote on the judge on October the 22nd. But as they wrapped up on Thursday, it was clear that Barrett had made it through the process unscathed. A vote is expected on October 22nd in the Judiciary Committee and by the full Senate at the end of the month. Progressive Democrats' ire, however, wasn't just aimed at Barrett. Liberals are calling for Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, the ranking member of Judiciary, to be removed from the committee for this exchange she had with Graham at the conclusion of Thursday's hearing. Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank you Uh, This has been one of the best set of hearings that I've participated in. And I want to thank you for your fairness and the opportunity of going back and forth. Here to help us break all of this down is Sahil Kapoor, national political reporter for NBC News, and Jessica Taylor, my colleague at the Cook Political Report, the editor who covers Senate and governor's races. Jessica, Sahil, welcome. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Sahil, I'm going to start with you. The hearings went on for many, many hours. Uh, Many of us were not able to stay glued to them as you were. So can you give us the like TLDR uh, version of events? Did we learn anything about Amy Coney Barrett that we hadn't heard before these hearings? We actually learned shockingly little about her, (laughs) Amy. And the reason is she did her best to avoid answering questions. Her attitude seemed to be I have the votes to get confirmed. I don't want to rock the boat. I'm just going to dodge as much as possible. Now, a lot of these dodges are normal. Supreme Court nominees always get up there. Uh, For decades, they've been getting up there and saying, I'm not going to give any hints or forecasts or previews, which is, of course, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg standard on cases and legal questions that could come before me. She went a step further and refused to answer even basic, straightforward questions of law, such as, does a president unilaterally have the power to delay an election? The answer is obviously no. She didn't say that. Does a president have the authority to deny a person the right to vote on the basis of their race? She didn't say the answer is no. So she made an attempt to not rock the boat, to avoid triggering the president and kind of getting on his Twitter feed the way people do when they when they you know contradict him. And that seemed to be a big part of her goal. 
She did, however, come across as extremely intelligent and well-versed in uh, questions of law when she was asked about you know, her judicial philosophy about originalism and textualism, and that pleased the Republicans. And every indication is that she's in good shape to be confirmed. Jessica, there were a lot of theories before these hearings began about the impact of Supreme Court fight just, you know, days, weeks before the election. And I'm wondering if you think it has had any impact on these races for the Senate, especially since so many vulnerable Republican senators happen to sit on the Judiciary Committee. Well, you know, right after Ginsburg's death, when I was talking with Republicans, I think they overall saw this as a way to sort of change the conversation away from President Trump, away from COVID to sort of remind voters, okay, you may not like the president, but you like his judiciary nominees. And so to bring back some of those wavering independents, maybe even some traditional Republican voters that have since, uh, you know, flipped on Trump. But I think that that all evaporated after the first debate and then the president's COVID diagnosis because that brought COVID right back to the center. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, Republicans I've talked to this week, they sort of see it as a wash. They don't really see it as, um, you know, moving their voters or really moving these numbers because really after that sort of week of the debate and the president going to the hospital, then they saw on average, I think, you know, the poll numbers of Republicans drop about three to four points. I have never heard some Republican pollsters and strategists that I've talked to just sound so resigned almost to what they feel like their fate is going to be. And what it did do, though, is really energize Democrats. Um, And we saw that through fundraising. So the third fundraising quarter numbers were due last night, and I just finished adding up the numbers. And in our most competitive races that we have rated at the Cook Political Report, so races that we rate as toss-up or in our lean column, so there are 14 of those total, with 12 of those being Republican-held seats, just two Democratic-held seats. Um, uh, Democrats raised in a total of those races $328 million. Republicans just raised $134 million. So Democrats were out outraised their can- those candidates by over $194 million. I know that's remarkable. Again, it, challengers are not supposed to <laughs> outraise incumbents who have all of the benefits, right, of being a member of Congress that's supposed to help you raise money. Uh, but... In this moment, that has not been uh, particularly successful. Sahil, I want to go to something that did happen, though, in this this hearing. And it seems like Democrats are sort of laying a marker down about what the impact of this is going to be, this hearing and uh, the decision by Republicans to bring up this vote so close to an election, what that could mean for the future of relations in the Senate between Democrats and Republicans, especially if Democrats take control of the Senate. So I want you to listen to something that Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island, said the other day. Don't think that when you have established the rule of because we can, that should the shoe be on the other foot, you will have any credibility to come to us and say, Yeah, I know you can do that, but you shouldn't because of X, Y, or Z. Your credibility to make that argument at any time in the future will die. 
That's pretty ominous there, Sahil. And uh, you wrote that it foreshadows what could be a major fight among Democrats about whether and how to retaliate if they regain power. So what what sort of options do Democrats have and what do you think that they're planning? Yeah, that was Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island, putting Republicans on notice that if Democrats do gain power and take some drastic action, don't expect them to listen to Republican arguments saying, please don't do this. It would erode norms and institutions because the Democrats here are saying that Republicans are taking a highly unprecedented and extremely politically dangerous step in that it could force Democrats' hand uh, to retaliate. Now, in terms of what they're going to do, the honest answer is, and I've spoke to uh, dozens of Democratic senators and aides about this in recent weeks, nobody really knows. The honest answer is they're waiting to see. It will depend on what happens in the election. If they win a resounding mandate or, you know, they win a resounding election and feel like they have a mandate to do something unusual and drastic, they will consider it. It could depend on what this new six to three conservative court does. Does it overturn the Affordable Care Act? Does it cripple abortion rights? That's the kind of thing that could force Democrats' hand. In terms of what specifically they would do, what progressive activists want Democrats to do is to add seats to the Supreme Court, as many as four seats to make up for what in their mind is a theft on the part of Republicans from seats such as the Merrick Garland seat that President Obama didn't get to fill went to Neil Gorsuch and now Amy Coney Barrett violating their standard in the view of Democrats in doing so uh, even closer to an election, filling a seat. So that's what progressive activists want to do. Joe Biden yesterday in the town hall with ABC suggested he's open to changing the rules around life tenure in uh, ways that some constitutional scholars have suggested would comply with the text of the Constitution. It's a little complicated. But the bottom line is there are a lot of options. There's no certainty. And uh, Democrats are not united at this moment around any course of action. It will depend on what happens in the next few weeks and months. Um, So Sahil, at the ABC town hall on Thursday night, Biden was pressed on issues involving the Supreme Court, and he said he would give an answer to his opinion about changing the makeup of the court once the vote on Amy Coney Barrett had happened. What did you make of this? It was a clunky answer, but I listened to it a few times, and he did say that it depends on how things go in the Senate. So is there enough time for debate? Um, uh, How quickly do Republican senators push this through? And what is the impact of, you know, them in terms of whether they listen to certain Democratic arguments or not, whether they just steamroll the opposition, that sort of thing. Uh, So I think he was saying it depends on the process in the Senate, and it also depends on the final vote, which could mean uh, that if it's a straight down the line party, you know, party line vote uh, and, and completely partisan, which Supreme Court nominees pretty much never get then that could impact him as well. But really, it, what, I, what I heard there was Biden trying to avoid, trying to defer and to demur and, you know, to say, I don't want to take a position on this now and wait to see where the chips fall. And Jessica, that is a good transition to the question about, well, are Democrats going to be successful? Will they have a chance to retaliate? Um, this week, you wrote that Democrats um, are favored to win back control of the Senate in November Help us understand what's going on there and and what changed over these last few weeks here to give Democrats this advantage. I mean, really, I think just the bottom dropped out in this polling. And what we have seen, I think, is voters see 
these Republican incumbents as sort of enablers of Trump. And there are sort of some, you know, last minute efforts by some of these vulnerable Republicans to, you know, either distance them, you know, sort of criticize Trump. Um, for instance, this week, Texas Senator our, uh, uh, John Cornyn said that, you know, Trump's uh, response to COVID has been lacking and then sort of position themselves as a check and balance in a way of a potential Biden administration, which is what uh, Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina said. But, you know, even in that race that has sort of been rocked by a sexting scandal um, with Democrat, Democrat Cal Cunningham, even after that has been all over, he is still leading um, despite that. I mean, these are things that used to sink candidates. But I think, again, when the president's numbers really sort of fell, which we you know we've seen national mm-hmm. polls that have now been in the teens, sort of uh, 10 points, sort of, you know, a little bit of a, you know, rebound, I think, this past week, but still very very bad numbers for, you know, for an incumbent president uh, that would portend re-election. And similarly, just Republican senators then felt that down ballot. So I think that, you know, Trump is on a course to lose re-election and there's a very likely chance that he is going to take some of these Republican senators down with him. Jessica, I'm curious to this to this uh, sort of warning that uh, Senator Whitehouse gave um, to to Republicans, what what is the response been from Democrats, especially new challenger candidates? Many of them are first time candidates about these questions about changing the rules in the Senate, the filibuster rule, or packing the court, things like this. Are they taking positions on these issues, or are they sort of trying to stay away from that as long as they can? Most of them, when pressed on it, have either said, you know, I'm not really interested in that or sort of try, some have tried to avoid, you know, sort of sidestep the question. Um, But yeah, I mean, we are seeing Republicans try to make this an issue and even candidates that, of course, you know, say that they wouldn't do this. um, I think the, the message Republicans are trying to send is that. Well, you know, they're controlled by, you know, the National Party and Chuck Schumer wants to do this. They're going to bend to, you know, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing of the party. So we see that being intoned in ads. I mean, Hillary Clinton is still being invoked in a lot of ads. Interestingly, you don't see Joe Biden invoked in a lot of those ads. And I think it is. They're trying to show this sort of scary or progressive wing of the party, which might have worked as a selling point if. Bernie Sanders were the nominee, but it's Joe Biden. And, you know, while Biden himself, we have, you know, saw, we have seen, and, you know, again, in that town hall that you mentioned, he sort of, you know, fumbled that answer and wasn't really clear. You know, I think that it's not something Democrats want to be talking about, certainly, but I'm not sure that it really moves a lot of votes ultimately, because I think this election is about Trump. It is about health care, which is, you know, the key issue that one Democrats backed the House in 2018. And I think once again, it is on pace to win them back the Senate. But Zaha, I want to get to that question, too, given what happened uh, and the backlash to Senator Feinstein for her sort of her literal and figurative embrace of of Lindsey Graham. Um, does this suggest that um, for those new senators who are coming in, no matter what they said on the campaign trail or tried to dodge the question on the campaign trail, they're going to be facing a lot of pressure from progressives to make serious changes to the to the Senate rules once they get there? 
That's absolutely right. And that Feinstein moment with Lindsey Graham also underscored the extent to which there exist a lot of older institutionalist and or moderate Democratic senators who are resistant to making these big changes. You know, Democrats are, are not are fundamentally not an ideological party driven toward a specific ideological goal and willing to do drastic things to get there. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of members who like to stay in the middle of the road, and Diane Feinstein is uh, kind of an avatar of that. So yes, you're going to have that resistance from uh, those long-serving Democrats to making these big changes. And as she is learning, they and everyone else are going to be facing serious pressure from the activist progressive wing uh, to be more aggressive and to do something and to not let Republicans get away with what, in their view, again, is a theft of Supreme Court seats. What What is this back and forth with Dianne Feinstein going to result in? I mean, I know progressives are calling for her to be removed as the ranking member on that committee. But does that go anywhere? And does it matter if it at this point? It's hard to know exactly. It's not the first time Feinstein has faced pressure from the left. Um, in previous instances, she has overcome it. And a democratic culture on Capitol Hill revolves heavily around seniority, so it would be an, an unusual thing for her to be stripped of her role. But I do see something a little different in the, the nature of this pushback that she's getting. I think it's more aggressive than anything I've seen before, and uh, it would be it would be essentially up to Democrats, Democratic leadership to say, uh, we no longer want you to lead this committee. Maybe she goes to another committee. Maybe she steps down from uh, a leadership role and serves out the rest of her term. She is still a senator till 2025. She's not up for re-election anytime soon. So there are a number of ways this could go. But I think the overwhelming consensus among progressives at this point is that she should not be the Democrats leader on the Judiciary Committee, which is going to be overseeing if Democrats win. Democrats' response to the courts, nominating judges, uh, deciding whether mm -hmm. to do something significant and restructure the Supreme Court. And they simply don't see Dianne Feinstein as uh, in touch with, with, you know, or anywhere close to in touch with where they want to go on this, on this question. Well, Sahil Kapoor, Jessica Taylor, I want to thank you both for talking with us about this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Jessica Taylor is the Senate and Governor's Editor at the Cook Political Report. Sahil Kapoor is a national political reporter for NBC News. As we know, early voting is underway in a number of states across the country, and we've been hearing from many of you about your voting experiences. Hi, I'm in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. I dropped my ballot in a local drop box and checked online a few days later and it says that my ballot arrived. It was so easy. I just wish that they're allowed to start counting now. Besides that, I couldn't be happier with the process. Hi, this is Steve from Morrisville, Pennsylvania. Um, I am still waiting for my long overdue ballot for the 2020 presidential election uh, so I can vote by mail. During the primary in June, my mail-in ballot finally arrived about three days before the election day. So excuse me if I do not have full confidence in the voting process in Pennsylvania or for the 2020 presidential election in general. Thank you. Hi, this is Barbara calling from outside of Portland, Oregon. I have never spent so much time checking the website for information on when my ballot will be mailed to me. We have vote by mail in Oregon and I understand that my ballot's been mailed. I'm watching my post office box for it. 
And the minute it gets here, I'm going to be voting my choices and turning that sucker around and setting it into a local uh, collection box. Hi, my name is Cindy. I'm calling from San Diego. I will not be uh, mailing my ballot in this year. I'm going to be going to the polls because I'm not quite sure my signature that I have on my driver's license is going to match. In all these years of signing credit cards and pin pads, I'm worried that my signature has just turned into a big squiggle that I can't really match and I'm worried that the registrar of voters might not accept my ballot. So I will be going to the polls and just voting in person, which is nearby and I feel safe. We always love hearing from you. The number to call, 877-8-MY-TAKE. That's 877-8-698-253. For the first time in a long time, winning Texas is possible. Not only for Joe, but for the Senate and the State House as well. And if we win here in Texas, we are unstoppable. That was Jill Biden, wife of Joe Biden, campaigning in Texas on Tuesday as early voting began across the state. Now, for years, Democrats have been predicting that they can turn this red state blue. But the last time a Democratic presidential candidate actually won Texas was all the way back in 1976. Of course, we know Texas is changing, a diverse electorate. More than a third of those who voted in 2016 were Black or Latino, combined with a backlash to Trump in traditionally Republican suburbs, has given Democrats serious political traction. The latest polls show President Trump leading Joe Biden in the state, but by only a narrow two-point margin. There's also a Senate race in the state this year. Back in 2018, another Texas Senate race was the center of the political universe, Back then, Democratic Rep Beto O'Rourke raised millions of dollars and gained national attention for his race against Senator Ted Cruz. O'Rourke came up short, but his impressive showing gave him enough momentum and fame to mount a presidential run. Of course, a presidential run that was pretty short-lived. Two years later, another Republican senator is up for re-election. But this race hasn't gotten the same level of national attention as the O'Rourke-Cruz race did back in 2018. This week, I spoke to the Democratic Senate candidate and Air Force veteran M.J. Hagar about her race against three-term incumbent Senator John Cornyn. Her campaign brought in $13.5 million in the third quarter fundraising, and she's been outspending Cornyn in TV ads over the past few weeks. But even though the race is tightening, Cornyn is still ahead by an average of seven percentage points. I first asked her what it's like to run a campaign during a pandemic. I would try to stay responsible, keep our staff and our supporters safe. Um, but I also need to be out there. I mean, I need to be uh, meeting with people, not in rally kind of format, but, but you know, driving down to the R- Rio Grande Valley, the RGV, as we call it here in Texas. Um, and, you know, just all over the state, going to Houston, meeting with small business owners. So it's really more one-on-one stuff. But, um, you know, that's where I build my policy platform. But I got to tell you the the thing that, that COVID has done, I think, to campaigning is make a lot of the issues that were on people's mind and that we were running on already um, all that more potent. You know, we had a healthcare yeah, so crisis. So? Well, we had a healthcare crisis in Texas before the pandemic. Um, we had uh, nearly one out of five of us without access to insurance, without coverage. Um, and having that many people without coverage, obviously, number one, is not a good public health um, you know, situation, but it also makes like 
healthcare costs skyrocket and be ineffective or in, inefficient and and it closes doors of rural hospitals and things like that. I worked in healthcare for five years and I saw the, the high number of people who are unable to pay, like what that does to the business model. Um, but in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, people are losing their jobs. We have this employer provided healthcare model. So now nearly one out of three of us doesn't have health insurance. Um, so, you know, when people have to go get a COVID test, they have to save up the money for the test. It's a big part of why Texas has not been able to get this pandemic under control. Right. And and it is true that Texas, it seems like there are these waves. It seems it looks like it's under control. And now I see it, Dallas, it's spiking back up again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we ever were, were considered um, under control, um, to be frank. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think most public health experts have expected it to, to get worse as we get into cold and flu season. <clears throat> Excuse me, as we force open businesses and, and uh, classrooms, um, especially when people don't have the ability to go and see their doctor, then then yeah, we, uh, we are going to struggle with this for a while. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the economic impact. And I think the best thing we can do for the economy is get the public health aspect under control. Well, a lot of folks are looking to Congress right now, as a matter of fact, and the fact that there there is a piece of legislation sort of sitting up there on Capitol Hill and neither side seems to be able to, to push this thing over the finish line. Um, are you frustrated right now by the fact that there is no bill? And if so, what would you be willing to vote for? There are a lot of Republicans who say, you know what, if if Democrats over on the House side just give us something within the $1.8 trillion range, the pres- we'll vote for it and the president will sign it. Do you think that's what we should be seeing? Well, I think that the Democrats in the House have come down quite a bit and negotiated quite a bit, and they're not they're not getting to see that. And I'm not one to, to just point fingers in a partisan way and just always um, you know, defend Democrats and blame Republicans. Um, but I, I really do think in this case, the Democrats have done a lot of negotiating and coming down from what they believe, from what we believe um, we need to do to get our country back. Um, but, you know, I, I don't see that from the other side as much, but I've been paying a lot more attention to what's going on in the Senate because I'm running for a Senate seat. And mm-hmm. um, it's really frustrating for me to hear like my senator john cornyn who i'm running against say things like i don't see a sense of urgency at all i don't feel a sense of urgency to get out another relief package let's just wait and see you know it's just it shows such a disconnect from regular working people um you know they say things like let's wait till after the election to negotiate another package and that the the election is november 3rd and rent due is on the first (laughs) you know what i mean so um i think we need to elect more people who have feared that November 1st or first of the month in any any month um, who who have you know worried about how they're going to pay their bills have been laid off from a job like I have have worked minimum wage like I have have um, you know I lost a parent to a workplace accident I mean I just I have these life experiences that that so many people in DC who have lived largely a, a, a protected life for so long are, are so disconnected from that they don't under they don't understand how that sounds to us when you say things flippantly like, oh, we'll just wait till after the election. So it, it does sound like, at least on its face, where the uh, majority leader Mitch McConnell's coming from, though, is maybe there's something that's you know more targeted. You're not going to get everything that you want, but we'll give a certain amount of aid uh, out before the election. Is that something that you could support? In other words, not getting everything, 
yeah. again, like what we're hearing from well, uh, on the house side, the, the price tag, even if it is a pared down version of, of, of an aid package. I'm, I'm for that. Um, I do get frustrated when I see, um, you know, something really important that we need to do get tanked because of the things that are attached to it that people can't, can't vote mm-hmm. for. Um, that's, that's kind of my argument against the Green New Deal. I think that uh, aggressive action on climate change is so important that we can't let it get politicized with a- additional things. Um, so when I look at aid packages, you know, I would support a piecemeal um, uh, approach. What I worry is our opponents tend to politicize things and tend to spread misinformation and tend to um, support their wealthy corporate special interests over regular working people. And so I do think that part of negotiating is, hey, if you want to be able to say to run on this, um, we've we've heard them. We've heard John Cornyn say things like. Um, I wish the president would support a clean dream act because it would give me political cover. So I understand how they think. Um, I, I don't think that that's the way elected officials should think about, you know, what gives them CYA. Um, but if they want to run on something or if they want CYA or if they want to deliver for their special interests, um, then sometimes you have to attach the things that are going to be there to, to work for regular people as well. Um, and that, that's part of compromise and negotiation, but, but I would support a piecemeal, um, approach since it doesn't seem like anything else is getting through. I mean, the Senate hasn't done anything on COVID relief in six months. So whatever right. can get our government up and functioning again, uh, let, let's let's do it. Yeah, he's, they're calling it the the skinny package uh, right now yeah. that may be that, that may be brought up for a vote. Um, let's talk about Texas writ large and Democrat. Obviously, you're running statewide as a Democratic candidate. And this is one of those states for Democrats that every year, Democrats say this is the year, return in Texas blue, 2018, Senate race, really close, but just a little bit short. Why is this the year that Texas turns blue? I think every day we get closer. And and since we got so close um, last cycle and Ted Cruz has, he's so strong in Texas. A lot of people don't um, you know, they they like to make fun of him and they like to act like he's the most hated senator, but he has a pretty high approval rating compared to the rest in Texas. Um, whereas John Cornyn has such a low name ID and approval rating. He's really under the radar. He's much more vulnerable um, than Ted Cruz, in my uh, opinion. And, and that's what the data kind of shows us. But um, but it's not just my race, you know, like, like we are really running a, a strong coordinated campaign that is ground up. Um, we're very focused on flipping our state house. A lot, a lot of problems come out of our Republican controlled state house, things like not expanding Medicaid and uh, a lot of voter suppression. Um, so it, it's, I, I've been trying to run this very ground up. Um, I keep telling people when I'm out talking to them that the lower down the ballot, the race is the more impact it has on your life. Right. Um, so trying to help lift up those down ballot candidates and, and get people um, more information on them. Um, but really, I mean, I'm so confident this cycle because of a couple things, but um, we are setting registration and turnout records left and right. I mean, I think we registered 300,000 people in the two weeks leading up to the election. Um, I think we've had over a million votes so far, but but I could be wrong about that. I have to double check the numbers, but we are setting just absolute records um, despite all of the efforts from Governor Abbott to suppress our votes. So there are people waiting in line um, wrapped around the building. And, and the thing that is touching to me is how many stories I'm hearing from people saying, 
not only do we have lines wrapped around the building, which it sucks that people have to wait in long lines in the middle of a pandemic, um, but it's it's definitely invigorating to hear how many people are insisting that their voices be heard. But it's in places that people are reporting they've never seen a line, let alone a line wrapping around the building. So it's in areas that, you know, we've been 49th or 50th in voter turnout for so long. And then we set some records last cycle. Um, and I knew we were just going to blow those records out of the water um, now. And, and Texans are just really tired of their elected officials not sounding like them, not representing the values that that they hold. You know, uh, obviously, 2018, Texas seemed to be the center of the universe. And as you said, Ted Cruz, very high profile senator, Beto O'Rourke became a national figure, broke all sorts of records for Senate fundraising. Your race has not gotten that level of attention that we've seen uh, in 2018. And then there are many other Democratic candidates that are getting millions and millions of dollars, whether it's South Carolina, North Carolina, others. Why do you think that is? What what happened after 2018? Did people see how close Beto came and and say, well, OK, but if, if, if he can't win, then maybe we can't win at, at all in this state? Oh, not at all. No, I, I think that um, in a presidential, there's a, a lot, a lot more that people are focusing on, obviously. Um, and frankly, I'm perfectly fine with that. <laughs> we are a grassroots organization. And, and we we raised 13 and a half million just last quarter alone. So we're setting fundraising records on our own. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty introverted and 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 I'm I'm a servant leader and and like I said I'm running this ground up and, and focusing on down ballot candidates um, and I think that those down ballot um, people coming out to support those great down ballot candidates I, I I feel pretty strong that they'll vote for me while they're there too and for Joe Biden um, and so I, I I do think that it's the right approach um, as as you know as opposed to kind of a, a top down thing. Um, in the military, you know, I was a rescue helicopter pilot and our mission was these things we do that others may live. And then that's just kind of how I run run my life. Um, we we never set out to we're not doing rock concerts. We, we we're not doing a lot of national media. Um, we've turned down appearances on some national TV shows. Um, I'm really just focused on Texas and I'm focused on the things that are. Um, hurting my my fellow Texans, um, the broken immigration system, the healthcare system, obviously, the the you know wanting to make sure that we have an economy recover for regular working people in the middle class instead of just the wealthy CEOs. Um, that's really been my focus. Yeah. Do you think the nationalized attention ended up hurting the Beto O'Rourke campaign in the end? It became sort of a proxy. I think. Uh, I mean, you know, I th- I think I do. I, I think a little bit. Um, I think that um, I wouldn't be where I am if he hadn't shown us what was possible and really engaged this enormous grassroots uh, movement in the state that I've been able to build on. Um, At the same time, you know, I, I I feel like there was an energized, an energized response from the right to that. Mm. Um, And a lot of people on the right look at me and say, you're a combat veteran, you are fighting for regular people. and, And I'm not, touching on that like passion to stop me as much if that makes sense because they look at John Cornyn and they don't see him they don't see their values reflected in him and they see him say the things that they want to hear and then go to the Senate and not vote for those things and so we're having a higher information voter we just had a debate 
um, that I think went very well for us on Friday, where I, it was pretty easy to clearly show Texans how John Cornyn is not fighting for them. Um, and I think that people are just they've just had enough. And and it's it, for, for a third of our state, I think it's less about Republican and Democrat. It's really more about who's D.C. and who's Texas. And, you know, te- Ted Cruz was able to, to make a name for himself early on as as a Texan and somebody who stood up, stood up against the Republican establishment. And if there's anything John Cornyn has never done in his life, it's stand up against the establishment. <laughs> so one last thing here, you had a primary and then you had a runoff. And and recently, your former uh, Democratic primary opponent, the state senator, Royce West, uh, was quoted as saying that he's not voting for you because she's had a problem all along with black votes, folks, was his quote. What's going on there? I mean, you should read the statement that he put out right after it. I think he was um, upset. Um, this is kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about servant leadership, that that politics has just become about the person. And, and, and I don't think this race is about me. And I don't think the race is about Royce. And I don't even really think the race is about John Cornyn. It's about that person who is splitting pills because they can't afford their prescriptions. It's about, you know, workers that are not, that are getting told you better go to work or else you're going to get fired, but we're not going to protect you while you're there. We're not going to give you PPE. We're not going to help you socially distance. We're not going to, we expect you to keep those grocery store shelves stocked or work in that meat packing plant, but we're not going to help you do that. And if you should fall, there's somebody behind you to take your place. This idea that, that people are um, somehow, you know, disposable. Um, and, and so that's, it's the kids that are in cages and the people who can't see their loved ones because they're separated from them because of COVID when, when they die. Um, those are the people that, that I think we should be focused on. And, and frankly, when I'm out on the campaign trail, I only get this question from like inside the political echo chamber. The, the voters know that this is about the issues and about fighting for Texas. And they know that I can do that better for them than John Cornyn. So you're, what you're saying is that the state senator, this is about sort of an inside outside fight between the two of you in terms of your views on like the political establishment versus really the issues of uh, and concerns for black voters. Oh, of course. I mean, he's a 26 year state senator and I, I definitely don't please the 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 establishment <laughs> i am an, I'm, I'm a non-conventional candidate I'm, I'm a bit of a political outsider um and but i am so proud of all of the work that we've been doing in the black and brown communities across the state um because i gotta tell you black texans have been sold out taken for granted left behind for so long that going into these vibrant communities and and working with faith leaders and working with um, you know, I was endorsed by the Congressional Black Caucus and working with the Texas Coalition of Black Democrats and um, working with amazing servant leaders like Sylvester Turner, Sheila Jackson Lee, Bernice Johnson. Um, there's just a- an enormous kind of sense in the black community that I get that that they just don't want a snake oil salesman. They just want someone who uh, knows that we cannot win without black Texas votes and that we shouldn't. Um, and that we shouldn't lead without the input of Black Texans. Um, because frankly, I don't think that my job is to go to DC and speak for everyone and come up with solutions to everything. I think my job is to go into communities, gather stories and voices, ask questions about solutions and bring those 
voices with me to D.C. MJ Hagar, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Please be safe out there on the campaign trail. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. We also reached out to MJ Hagar's opponent, Republican Senator John Cornyn, but he declined our invitation to join us for this segment. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's me, Pee-wee. Where are you calling from? Texas. Where? Honest. Listen, I'll prove it. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. (laughs) Wait, don't hang up. And we're back talking about the political landscape in Texas this year. By the way, there is no basement in the Alamo, everyone. It is the largest red state in the country, and it's in play for the first time in decades. We just heard from Democratic Senate candidate M.J. Hagar. I also spoke to Abby Livingston, D.C. bureau chief at the Texas Tribune. Tuesday was the first day of early voting in Texas. I asked Abby what we're seeing in terms of turnout so far. We are seeing huge jumps when you compare day to day, first day of voting, early voting, two years, four years ago versus now, much more dramatically larger than 2016. But the reason I'm cautious is uh, Republicans will say, well, what if these are just election day voters who are coming in because they're so excited and they're, they were going to vote anyway? My instinct is this is probably more people turning out at this point probably is a good indicator for Democrats. But I'm reluctant to say that with a lot of confidence because uh, from my understanding, there are long lines in rural areas. And I think it's safe to assume Mm. those folks may be voting for Donald Trump. And so what I am gleaning from this early on is that we may be seeing an arms race of voters coming out rural versus city. And I just think it's uh, waiting for more days to add up is probably a safer assumption and seeing where they come in county by county. We also know that this week, Jill Biden was in Texas saying, "Okay, this is it. We're going to turn Texas blue. But the Biden campaign has certainly not put in the the investment money wise that they have in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, et cetera. So what is what's really happening there at the presidential level? And what are what are you hearing from folks uh, in Texas about their expectations? expectations are all over the place. And I think it depends on where the person I'm talking to lives, what they're seeing around them. And again, this divide of rural versus city just completely changes how people view things. I think the last time a Democrat seriously went for Texas was probably Bill Clinton in 1996. Um, And he was campaigning late into September of that year before he backed off. Hillary Clinton made some noise about it. Um, The Clintons have an affinity for Texas, and she wanted that to be a thing, but they really did not spend much time or money in the state in 2016. So Biden 
is spending money and he's got dozens of staffers. I think at this point, I think the last time I checked, it was more than 60 on the ground paid staffers. It is a pittance compared to Florida or uh, Pennsylvania, but it is a huge escalation from past campaigns. I think some of that is a matter of Biden having raised so much money, they have the money to do that. Many people in Texas have been lobbying for some semblance of that the state matters. I think there is now a point where folks are sick of being the ATM for the Democratic Party uh, in the state. And so I think some of this is appeasing them. But Joe Biden does not need to win Texas to win the presidency. If Texas falls, it will be a landslide. And so I think there has been a real reluctance to do that, especially given the scars of 2016. They're watching it, but they're being careful. I mean, after 2018 and Beto mania, I think many of us expected that the 2020 Texas Senate race would get a lot of attention. What are, what are you hearing about the Senate race? What do you think about the Senate race? And first, why it has been under the radar after what happened in 2018? And two, why she doesn't seem to be um, hitting uh, Biden-level support in the state, at least in the polling. I think it's probably going to escalate an in interest in the, the final weeks of the campaign. But it definitely has is, has not. And I think John Cornyn does not command the adoration or incite the hatred that Ted Cruz did. And so I think the, per, the, the there is, she's got a very large personality, but it, neither of the candidates this cycle compete with the ones of last cycle. But I've long thought Cornyn will probably be fine. And there's been enormous confidence in him in the Republican world because he is a former chairman of the Senate campaign committee for two cycles. And so this is a guy who understands general elections in a way a lot of Texas Republicans do not. You know, what we saw in 2018, right, was that Democrats' success in the state was really driven by the suburban vote and around Dallas and Houston. Um, is that where that energy is coming from this time? Absolutely. So uh, Democrats picked up two U.S. House seats last cycle, and they are really significant areas. So this is North Dallas and West Houston. And basically the richest people in the state of Texas are now represented by Democrats. And so that is just fascinating in its own way of fundraising and how those dynamics play. But Beyond those two seats, we saw margins close all over the state. Almost every congressional district, the Republican won by less than the cycle before. The, these people came back and they're better and more have more money. And so we are just seeing this assault all over the state in areas I never dreamed would be competitive. Talk to us a little bit about something else that Texas is in the news for at this uh, moment in time, which is the decision by Governor Abbott to limit a one drop box for early votes per county. And you have a lot of Democrats who say this is voter suppression. And in a county like Harris County, which is Houston, there are, you know, millions and millions and millions of people. Can you, can you sort of put this into context about what's happening and, and what you think its impact could be on voters who want to participate early? You've got counties in Texas, even in the rural areas that geographically are larger than some states. Um, mm-hmm. Harris County is larger population wise than some states. Um, and so you've got all these people. Um, and, and I believe the Harris County drop off is um, one of the stadiums and it's an hour drive for some people to get there. Um, so and there were lines of cars earlier this week waiting to drop off. Um, but my question is. 
I almost think there's, I, I wonder, I, I have no doubt that it probably means some people will not vote or, you know, not execute because it's too much trouble. But on the flip side, I wonder if you make such a big deal about keeping people away. Is that like telling someone you can't, you know, have a candy bar? Well, it just makes you want it even more. And it, does it make that person all the more determined to get out? I mean, we're just not seeing, at least this early on, evidence that, um, you know, people aren't showing up to the polls or dropping off. There are a lot, I mean, there's documented evidence that people are still coming out. Abby Livingston is D.C. Bureau Chief of the Texas Tribune. You can't talk about Texas politics without talking about the Latino vote. According to recent estimates by the U.S. Census Bureau, the Latino population in Texas grew by 2 million over the last decade, and it's on track to become the state's largest demographic group in 2021. Now, like any diverse group of people, these voters don't fit into a neat, easy-to-describe package. But that doesn't mean that political writers won't try to find a nice narrative to try to squeeze them into. For years, that narrative has been the quote-unquote sleeping giant. Basically, it goes like this. Latinos are a growing population, but haven't fully taken advantage of their political power because they don't vote. Once they do, this group of voters will become political kingmakers. To help us sort fact from stereotype, I spoke to Jason Casayas, an associate professor of political science at the University of Houston. As everyone knows, Texas is a very large state and there's a very large, diverse Latino community of Tejanos, uh, Latinos who have been living in what we know as Texas since before Texas was even part of the United States. And so you have many Latinos who are, are not immigrants, you know, who's parents, grandparents, great-grandparents even, may not have been immigrants. And so you have that population. And of course you have, because we have a long border with Mexico, uh, many sort of newer immigrants from Mexico. Um, but then if you look at the big cities like Houston and Dallas, you have an increasing population of Latinos coming from all over Latin America. Um, in particular, Houston, you have a traditionally large Venezuelan community. So, um, so there's quite a lot of diverse population of Latinos within the major cities, especially more so than, of course, in the rural communities uh, of South Texas along the Rio Grande Valley, where you have large Latino populations, but, but those p Latino populations are, are much more rural, of course, and, um, and much different in terms of their outlook, I think, than those in the major cities. When you look at whether it's the issue set or ideological leanings uh, that are important to Latino voters in rural areas and those in urban areas, does it mirror what we also see in white communities, right? That rural, a little more conservative socially, um, issues like guns become more important as you get into urban areas, the social issue debate and issues about housing and other things become much more prominent. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's true to some extent, although there are some differences, and I want to uh, talk a little bit about those uh, in a second. Um, you know, we do see this, of course, rural versus urban divide in our politics. You know, there's no mystery listeners here know about it, where rural voters have increasingly become Republican, and of course, um, urban and to some extent suburban have become more Democratic. You know, among Latinos, I think you, you haven't seen that much of a switch in terms of Latino voters in those rural areas voting for Republicans. Certainly, I think they vote for Republicans at higher rates than Latino voters in the cities. Um, but you still have the majority, of course, opting for Democrats. Now, that doesn't mean that they support the Democrats on these social issues that you mentioned, like guns and, uh, and abortion and perhaps uh, same-sex marriage, although that's become less of a national issue. Um, I think what you see, however, is that they do identify, for the most part, as conservative, especially the middle age and up. 
Um, and now what, what that means, you know, to be conservative means something very different, I think, for Latinos and, and I think for African-Americans as well than for whites in the sense that um, it doesn't often translate into support for the Republican Party. And I think that's for a lot of reasons, um, especially sort of uh, the fact that if even if you look at some of the polls recently that we've conducted, um, you know, Latinos are saying coronavirus is the most important issue, the economy, jobs, you know, immigration has kind of come down the list um, right now, but certainly in th that issue has become sort of an important one. Um, you know, it's lurking in the background. We're not talking as much about it. Um, if we didn't have the pandemic, I think we would be talking a lot more about it. But, you know, when immigration becomes sort of a, a salient issue, um, you know, there's certainly, I think, some concern about some of the uh, sort of anti-immigrant positions in the Republican Party that may deter some conservative uh, rural Latinos from voting for Republicans. Let's also talk about... Uh Latinos and turnout. And, you know, for years, this has been this stereotype uh, of the sleeping giant, right? This idea right. that you have this big population that does not turn out at the levels that they that they could. I just read recent data that 20% of those who cast a ballot in the last election were Latino, even though they make up as you pointed out, over 30% of the population, or at least voting age population eligible to vote. Can you talk us through some of those theories and what this means to be a sleeping giant? And if yeah, that's misplaced, that, that, that phrase is, is just not an appropriate one when we talk about this. Right. I think that phrase is something, you know, every four years we hear it. And, um, you know, traditionally sort of we as scholars of political science and Latino politics in particular, we kind of uh, sort of uh, have a visceral reaction uh, to that yeah. phrase. In fact, today there's a, I've just read a recent um, great article in Texas Monthly by Cecilia Bailly. <laughs> I don't know if you've that's read That's what it, I was just quoting. Yes, okay, that's where right, I was quoting yeah. this. Exactly. It was great. Yeah. yeah. So it's a fascinating read. I encourage everyone to read it because yeah. there's such an in-depth look at the complexity of the you know, Latino vote in Texas and how we shouldn't sort of have this one-size-fits-all approach and, you know, and how sort of Latinos in many ways have been you know, ignored by, by politicians, ignored by our political parties, both of them in many ways. And so there's been a lot of uh, you know, debate about this. Um, and of course, um, you know, voter turnout turnout has traditionally been low, and we know that that's the case, although this, this year it seems that turnout seems to be higher. In our recent poll in Texas, you know, 76% of Latino registered voters said that they were certain that they will vote. Now, of course, you know, we'll have to see what happens at the end of the day. Um, there's certainly a predisposition to, to saying that, and you know, that is a socially desirable thing to say, but those numbers are, are fairly high, and we see that across other states as well, even higher in California um, and about the same in Arizona and Florida. Um, but I think, you know, when we talk about uh, the Latino vote, um, you know, and this this met, this sort of uh, idea of a sleeping giant. You know, Latinos have always sort of been involved in politics. Have always sort of, um, you know, had sort of some sense in which they have um, participated in politics. And participation is more than just voting. Um, you know, we saw with the protests, and you know, it's, it's been a while now, but the, the 2006 immigration protests, um, that there's that there has been a lot of participation, and a lot of that participation is overlooked or or ignored. Um, and so I think, 
you know, in Texas, though, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to lie, right? There, there, there has been sort of an underperformance in terms of Latinos turning out to vote, and we know a lot of reasons for this. And a lot of it has to be tied towards sort of the idea that Latinos are disproportionately young, and so we know young people in general are not as mm-hmm. likely to turn out to vote. So that that's a big explanation. Uh, socioeconomic status, right? That's obviously a, a huge um, predictor of whether someone votes, and and you know, obviously Latinos are are um, have lower socioeconomic status, and so I think that this is changing because we're ha- we're seeing more and more Latinos, of course, you know, get into the middle class as well, and um, and and upwards, and so that's going to, I think have a positive effect on turnout, and so we're seeing these I think slowly, um, more slowly than a lot of people would like, but but slowly Latinos exerting more political influence in the state. Again, a lot of the conventional wisdom after Trump's success in 2016 was that his rhetoric on race and race baiting and on immigration was going to create like historic um, gaps between the Republican Party and Latino voters, right? And that this was going to turn away an entire generation of voters um, who are Latino. But it, it seems as if, again, in national polls, we're seeing this, I'm curious what you're seeing in Texas, that his support from Latinos isn't growing, but he hasn't necessarily lost their support that he already had. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we see uh, remarkable stability. And that's why when we when we often hear about Latinos as swing voters, you know, that, I think that's kind of, that's not right in the sense that if we look at uh, how Latinos have voted in presidential elections since, you know, since we're able to tell, um, you know, for the most part, you see two thirds of Latinos vote for, for Democrats and about a third vote for Republicans, plus or minus a little bit, you know, George W. Bush did a little bit better, right? Um, and then, you know, Romney, about 27%, McCain about the same, and, and now we're seeing Trump right about 24, 27%. And, you know, we haven't seen a, a dip be, uh, below that. And, you know, I think, you know, and we all always say this expression, partisanship is a hell of a drug. And I think that's true also for Latinos, right? Um, you know, those who are Republican are going to stick by with, with their um, with their Republicanism. And it could be for a lot of reasons that uh, they, may be, they may overlook some of this uh, rhetoric on immigration. Um, if they're religious, perhaps it could be the abortion issue. Um, if they're young males who care about gun control or are not wanting gun control in rural areas, they may sort of focus on that. Or may kind of sort of overlook a lot of these these flaws that that the president may have in favor of him just being a, a good businessman or being an outsider. I mean, there are a lot of these sorts of I think ways to explain that twenty four or twenty seven percent. So you know, for me, it, it wasn't a, a huge surprise that that number hasn't really gone down um, because there are a lot of sort of ways in which um, you know partisans can overlook a lot of um, flaws in their own candidates. <laughs> and yet at the same time, Joe Biden seems to be not doing as well as Hillary Clinton, again, nationally among Latino voters. And I'm curious if you're seeing the same thing in Texas. And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, and I, I think the Biden campaign has been criticized for not doing enough to outreach to Latino voters. Um, in many ways, I think it, it was part of the problem that Hillary Clinton had, and that and that sort of um, taking Latino votes for granted. Like, you know, there's no way they're going to vote for for Trump. You know, after all that he said he said about Latinos, right? So obviously they're going to come to us. 
But I think Latinos need to be sort of uh, reached out to, and it can't be in a, in a sort of pandering way. It can't be the kind of uh, mariachi politics or, or playing des, uh, Despacito on a cell phone, right? Um, you know, I think it's got to go beyond that. And I think that's been some of the criticism of, of the Biden campaign that, you know, you just sort of sit back and wait out the clock. He's benefiting just from the, from the unpopularity of Trump among many Latinos. But, um, but I think uh, the criticism is that he could have done more and he could do more. Well, Jason Casillas, thank you so much for spending time with me today and, and, and helping us understand this a lot better. You're most welcome. And one more thing for me today. Every election about this time, when asked about expectations for the election, pundits and campaign strategies say things like, well, it all comes down to turnout, which is the political cliche of all political cliches. Of course, it comes down to turnout. But this year, turnout is actually taking on new meaning. Experts are predicting a record turnout, but we've also never had to vote in a time of a health pandemic. And as the number of COVID cases climb, worries about the safety of voting in person could rise as well. And poll workers may also feel nervous about showing up to work, leaving polling places understaffed. Plus, many of those who are worried about trying to vote by mail are worried that their ballots may not make it back to the election offices in time. So maybe the it all comes down to turnout is more than just a throwaway line. It's more important and unpredictable than ever. That's all for us today. Our crew that makes this show rolls deep. They are Amber Hall, who's our senior producer. Lydia McMullen-Laird was our associate producer this week. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our sound designer and director. And Lee Hill is our executive producer. A special thank you and shout out to Debbie Daughtry, who has been our board op in these COVID quarantine times. She's been coming into the city every day to help us put on this show. And we cannot thank her enough. We love you, Debbie. We'll see you around for sure. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.